Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA, and today I'm honored to have on the show Vince Campisi. Vince has been, I, I, I could read a 20-page bio on Vince's experience and expertise, but uh, I am going to proclaim, because it's been proclaimed to me, that Vince is the smartest guy in America on, uh, on bridges. Vince, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, and I decline that honor. So, <laughs> uh, Vince, how we start the show is really getting to know your career path and, and really how you became so experienced. And, and I mean, bio says it all, 50 years of experience. You have 21 pages here of different projects, different engagements, different agencies and, and uh, white papers. So tell us, how, how did you end up uh, getting involved in the bridge engineering business? Well, uh, Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to be here. And uh, it's a long story, which I'll, uh, you know, tell you in as brief a session as possible. Um, I've been doing this for about 60 years now. Um, I began uh, actually very early on at a time in, uh, when night school was a familiar phrase to people. And I had completed a year of day school after I got out of the service. And... Uh, after that year, I wanted to uh, switch over to an evening program uh, in order for that I might be able to work, hopefully in the industry, and gain experience while I was going uh, to school. Uh, at the time, my father, who was very influential in my life, I'm very, very happy to have had, them, had him there for many years, uh, doubted that I would finish. And he said, if you switch to night school, You'll never finish. And I made him a promise that I would, and I did. And uh, I was able at that time to uh, work for a, a very, very fine engineering company, whom I was with for about 10 years. And the owner of that engineering company uh, was a person that um, had been brought up in the industry in such a way that he learned to trust people to do what he asked them to do. And he was very astute at, uh, you know, finding good people to work for. And because of that, I was able to work uh, under some very, very, very good bridge engineers. Uh, and they were grateful enough to impart their wisdom and uh, knowledge and whatnot on me as I was going to school. It made it not an easy path for me because... Uh, working all day and going to school at night, getting married in the process and having some children. Uh, you know, there were a lot of strings tugging in different directions, but I managed to do it and uh, I finished uh, actually in kind of record time. I think I was done in about eight years uh, of evening program covering about five, uh, five years of uh, actual college work. Um, I was able to take a lot of my courses and take the final exams. Uh, <laughs> and the school naturally uh, said, 
you know, uh, we'll give you the credit. You took the final exam. You did very well on it, but you have to pay the tuition. So <laughs> and pay for the credits. <laughs> and and we did that. But uh, that really enabled me to uh, shortcut a lot of, uh, you know, courses that I would have had to take. And very often I substituted higher courses that uh, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to take had I taken the uh, earlier, you know, uh, courses leading into them. And all of that was because of the experience that I gained while I was working. So I was very, you know, very grateful for that. Um, the second uh, job that I had was uh, one in which I had been invited to become um, a principal in a firm. It was a very small firm. And uh, we were building the thing up. We did a lot of uh, a lot of work that included, oh, um, uh, dams, flood control projects, had a lot of bridges on it, uh, uh, a lot of infrastructure work. And that was very, very valuable experience. And actually, it was my second experience with doing some overseas work. Uh, we were invited to uh, come down to, actually, it was the Dominican Republic. And this was at a time when... Uh, uh, Batista had uh, just been taken out of, uh, you know, um, uh, his position in running the government down there. And we were asked to come down and take a look at a uh, uh, project that involved building a dam, which would have been for um, uh, hydroelectric purposes, as well as irrigation and flood control. So we ended up going down there and the uh, we believed that the premise that we were being brought down on was this was going to be a very low head dam, very near uh, the North Atlantic side of the island. Uh, and uh, it wasn't going to be a very major structure. Well, when we got down there, we found out that we were looking at uh, uh, a dam that probably was uh, on the order of magnitude of about 300 to 400 feet tall and probably about a thousand feet across in a very steep ravine. And if you know the Dominican Republic at all, it is one of the most mountainous countries in the uh, Caribbean. And it actually has the highest mountain in the Caribbean, I believe somewhere around 12 or 13,000 feet tall. And it's not unusual to have snow up on top of that mountain either. And we were very close to that point when we were looking at the dam. So I did a uh, design for a dam that was actually 350 feet tall, and uh, it uh, was about 1,000 feet in length across this uh, ravine. And it was uh, a number of years after the manuscript that I had published, uh, or that I had written, uh, was put into effect. And another firm came in and actually designed the dam. Uh, at that point, they were uh, uh, a, a I guess they were engaged through the World Bank. And they ended up building something very, very close to what we have designed. So I felt, you know, I felt very good about having done the preliminary work on that and getting it off on the right foot. So uh, that was another phase of my experience. Um, I also did a short uh, stint in public service. Uh, I was a municipal engineer uh, on a part-time basis, uh, for some towns in New Jersey. And then I was asked to take over um, a district that involved uh, uh, several counties on the uh, approach to 
New York Lincoln Tunnel and the Holland Tunnel and whatnot. So I did a stint for two years as the uh, uh, engineer in charge and director of public works uh, for that. Um, and that was an interesting experience because it let me see uh, the other side of the coin. Uh, normally I had been working in private industry for government. But now I was working in government for you know the public. So uh, that was, all of these things were valuable, valuable experience. Uh, cut to the chase and uh, the last position that I held uh, was as a uh, partner and chief bridge engineer for a uh, fairly large firm. At the time that uh, I was asked to join the firm, there may have been uh, several hundred people in it at that point. And we probably had, uh, I don't know, maybe five or six offices, uh, mostly located in the Northeast. Uh, when I left uh, many years later uh, in 2012, uh, we had probably over 2,000 employees and uh, wow. more than 30 offices nationwide and several overseas offices. Uh, and that was really the capstone, the height of uh, uh, my career. We were working for many, many DOTs, uh, again, federal government doing a lot of uh, consulting work for them, uh, private agencies and whatnot, and uh, some overseas projects as well. Uh, at that point, I had a, when I retired in 2012, I had about 50 or 51 years of uh, experience. And <clears throat> I had uh, announced my retirement, and I had been doing a lot of forensic engineering and expert witness work for many of our clients. Uh, and I got some calls saying, well, are you going to continue doing that for us? And I said, well, I was retiring, but, you know, and uh, in order to uh, uh, continue to do that work, I formed my own firm, my own LLC uh, in February of 2012. And I've been doing that ever since. And I have to say, so you've been retired for 10 years. Yes, I've been retired for 10 years. <laughs> and in that 10 years, well, let me start by saying in the 50 years prior to that, I was never without a day's work. In the 10 years since, I have been busier than I was in the 50 years before. <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm glad that, you know, these clients have confidence in my work and whatnot. And I keep getting new clients, uh, you know, by referral from the other ones. And uh, that's what I've been doing, forensic engineering and uh, expert witness work primarily. And I do some consulting on uh, bridge design and whatnot. So, um, so you have it. I mean, an, an extremely impressive body of work and career path in uh, probably ten minutes. Uh, you've you know you've been at this for sixty years. Uh, I have a couple of topics I want to dive into. Mm -hmm. um, number one is because you've been involved public and private side, and and you've seen a lot of different types of engagements. What what are we? What do you see in the industry that we just can't seem to get right? You know, you've seen sixty years. We we make the same mistakes. What is it that you see uh, us doing over and over again? Well, uh, actually, it's a, a pet peeve of mine, and um, in the industry as well as uh, many other many other industries have. Um, 
codes of ethics. And the code of ethics for engineers is uh, one that the number one rule is that anything that we do, the safety of the public is paramount. You cannot, you know, uh, do anything really which would be injurious to uh, to the public in any way. Um, if all of the engineers, if all of the architects, all of the contractors that are involved remembered that one thing and kept it in front of them, there would be many, many accidents, many failures that would be prevented. Um, I'm a member of the American Society of Civil Engineers, and I'm chairman of um, uh, one of the forensic engineering division. They have a forensic engineering division. I'm chairman of the Committee on Practices to Reduce Failures. So when I say it's one of my pet peeves, um, I'm working on this committee heading it up, and really we are hoping through publications that we develop through the members of my committee uh, that will be distributed to the industry in general, uh, that these will serve as guides and hopefully prevent future failures. In essence, we've, we've joked around and said, we'd like to work ourselves out of a job. And, <laughs> and that is the truth. I mean, every time we see something that's failed and whatnot, you know, we always question why. Um, some of the reasons may very well be that people are um, requested, let's say engineers and architects are requested by owners to do something different, to do something special. And right now there seems to be a prolification of uh, design of very tall, slender buildings. If you think of <clears throat> skyscrapers, one of the things that comes to mind is the Empire State Building. And I had an office in the Empire State Building for many, many years. And that building was rock solid. Uh, I mean, it was constructed of uh, masonry and structural steel framing. Uh, the building had a slenderness ratio that matched or exceeded what is recommended by many authorities. A slenderness ratio is you take the width of the building and the height of the building and you come up with a ratio and say it's got a ratio of 10 or 12 or 13 or whatever it is. And that's an indication of how slender the building is. Well, there are buildings that are being built now, some of them in New York City, uh, that have a ratio of uh, around two or three. There's one building that's about 30 feet wide and about 1,300 or 1,400 feet tall. Uh, think of it as a pencil sticking up in the air or more likely a piece of wire sticking up in the air. When you get high wind loads on that thing, you know, it's subjected to all kinds of loads and uh, a lot of vibration occurs. I remember when we... Uh, uh, had offices in the World Trade Center, the World Trade Center that unfortunately was the uh, subject of 9-11. And when that building first opened, uh, even though it had <clears throat> a very good slenderness ratio, uh, on very windy days, the elevators would get stuck as they were going up and down because they would bind on the tracks. Uh, you would hear mm. pipes creaking in the men's room. And if you hung a plumb bob in a window on the upper floor, 
you could actually see the movement in that plumb bob where it would move back and forth maybe about an inch or two, but that was an indication of how much the building was swaying. Huh. Now, these tall, slender buildings that are being built today have got a much slender ratio, uh, and the people that are now occupying them are complaining and saying that, uh, you know, they're subject to uh, motion sickness because they sway so much. And the same kind of problems that they had in the World Trade Center, elevators binding, uh, pipes leaking and breaking and whatnot, all because of the sway in the buildings. Now, what's the reason for that slender ratio? Did they really need to build that building that way? You know, uh, is there not enough office space or uh, uh, residential space in New York that, you know, you had to find that skinny lot to build that thing on? Uh, or was it somebody who just wanted to set a record? Um, you know, if it was done for the wrong reasons, it's wrong. If it was done for the right reasons, then yes, that's how we, uh, that's how we grow. That's how we learn. And that's how, um, you know, projects are uh, uh, developed that enhance the industry. But when you do something strictly for... Uh, you know, the exposure, uh, I think that's the best way I could phrase it. When you do something that's strictly for the exposure, then I think you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And uh, really, engineers and architects should have a duty and a responsibility to say, you know, I really don't think that that's the right thing. I think that we should be approaching this project a little differently. And we can certainly do a lot of things to enhance a building design. Um, you know, look at some of the stuff that Frank Gehry does. Uh, Frank Gehry, very noted architect. And, uh, you know, his bridges, uh, his buildings are not rectangular. They are uh, all kinds of free forms and whatnot, spectacular looking things. And you turn around and say, my God, how did they ever build this thing? And, you know, I would hate to be the fabricator, the steel fabricator or the concrete constructor, <laughs> you know, to say that uh, I wanted to work through that geometry problem to build one of his buildings. But they're spectacular. And, uh, you know, and his reputation is well-deserved, you know, what he does. So, you know, I hope that uh, that's given you some some idea. And, yeah. it, it does. And, and it, it actually leads me to a follow-on question, which is, you know, so so code of ethics, number one rule, anything we do should be for the safety of the public. Uh, we've got public and, you know, public officials, public engineering chiefs uh, wrestling with, I think, you know, two major issues. One is what ASCE uh, or ACSE, AC, ACEC, ASCE, I believe, uh, the infrastructure grade of America, right? I think we, we got the grade of a D, Uh if, if I remember correctly. So we have bridges, dams, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about the operations and maintenance. We're not very good at funding it. Uh, and then on top of that, you have sea level rise where, you know, our, our cities are, are becoming less uh, protected uh, to, you know, the hundred year storms. Um, what do you, what do you say to the industry around those two, you know, behemoth problems well, um, normally anything that's done in this regard is precipitated by some kind of spectacular event. 
we started inspecting bridges on a nationwide level after the Silver Bridge failure, which occurred, I believe, in 1968. Uh, Christmas of 1968, a uh, bridge between, uh, uh, let's see, Silver Bridge was located in Kentucky and uh, Ohio. Um, and this bridge was a uh, suspension bridge, and the suspension cables were really I-bar chains, steel I-bar chains. There were a pair of these chain links that connected every pin uh, and every uh, section of that uh, suspension span as it went across the river, went up over the towers and came back to the anchorages. Um, one of the things with those suspension chains, they were in such close proximity to each other that you could not inspect them, even if there was a routine inspection of them done, because you couldn't see to get to the inside of them and see if there were any cracks that were developing or anything. Anyway, unfortunately, a couple of days before Christmas, uh, a lot of traffic going over it at night uh, to an area where the, all the shopping was occurring on the other side of the river, and one of these I-bar chains snapped, uh, causing the entire structure to collapse. Um, it was a very, very spectacular failure at that time. And because of the media, it was very, you know, well published throughout the country. It wasn't the kind of thing like happened with the Quebec Bridge failures in 1880. You didn't have a media. You didn't have the 11 o'clock news. None of that was going on. But this became very spectacular. And it, Actually, I'm, uh, we're all glad that it was because that precipitated the National Bridge Inspection Program. Federal government then dictated that every bridge in the United States had to be inspected at least once every two years. And if anything was found to be deficient, uh, then it was to be inspected on a more regular basis. And that regular basis could be as frequent as every week, every day, until that you know, uh, whatever it had to be was corrected. So that, you know, that started the National Bridge Inspection Program. And that program dictated that the people that were inspecting the bridges all had to be registered professional engineers. At least the work had to be supervised by registered professional engineers with the uh, experience in bridge design and they would have to know what elements were critical in that bridge and make sure that they were uh, inspected. And in fact, the program went on to say that the inspection shall be hands-on and every piece shall be inspected no further than arm's length away. So now you have all these tall bridges and all these things, and uh, now we had to train engineers how to access those points. So rope access, uh, uh, you know, sky lifts, uh, all kinds of things, snooper inspections, all of that stuff was developed in order to implement this bridge inspection program. And every bridge in the United States today is inspected at least once every two years. Uh, there is a rating system which is used nationwide by all the agencies, uh, and that rating system, you know, says which items are critical and which items you know, are um, uh, 
um, experiencing uh, normal wear and tear, and all bridges cannot be a 10, you know, like all people that we know cannot be a 10. <laughs> and, you know, if you're a seven or an eight, you're in good shape. You know, there might be some minor things wrong. Uh, there might be, uh, you know, a crack in a sidewalk or something, something minor. Um, when it gets down into the twos and the threes, then that means that you've got to do something very, very quickly. The bridge might have to be shut down uh, temporarily, or the bridge might actually have to be replaced. And that's what that program is designed to do. So you can pretty well rest assured as a member of the public, the traveling public, that if you're going over a bridge today, the chances are um, that that bridge has been inspected and it's safe and there's something there that says that, uh, you know, you don't have to worry of, um, you know, sudden risk uh, affecting it. Now, somebody will turn around and say, well, what about that bridge out in uh, Pittsburgh that collapsed uh, the morning that a bus was going over it and whatnot happened recently, not too long ago? Uh, how did that come to happen? Well, uh, the bridge was being inspected. Um, and they felt that, uh, you know, that it was being inspected properly, but it experienced a sudden failure. Uh, I'm not going to venture to uh, discuss, you know, uh, what it is that the report will find or what they will issue on it. Um, certainly, you know, engineers that are uh, very, very well versed in analyzing failures are working on that, you know, right now. And uh, the goal there is to make sure that it doesn't happen again when they find out what the cause is. But it could have been any one of a number of things. So, um, you know, um, our bridge inspection program, I think, is uh, probably one of the best worldwide. Um, and that goes for all of the agencies that are involved. Uh, and we all try and do our best to make sure that we don't miss anything. But... There's a lot of things to look at, um, you know, and the unexpected happens. Then there are other things that happen as well. Sometimes uh, blind luck is on our side, and there are bridges that are called non-redundant. What that means is if I have a bridge and there are seven girders that are supporting it, the supporting the deck, and if one of those girders fail then the likelihood, and it's a very good likelihood, is that the other six girders are going to work together to participate to share all of the load that was shed from the girder that failed. And that's a, a very, very good example of a redundant structure. It's called a redundant load path. Non-redundant structures might be a truss bridge where you see the two trusses on either side. And those trusses, on, particularly on some of the older trusses and whatnot, are non-redundant because any element that fails, like that I-bar that failed in the Silver Bridge, would cause an immediate collapse of the structure and total collapse of destruction. Um, we have found ways that we can take uh, some non-redundant structures and actually rehabilitate them so that they do become redundant. A lot of creative ways to do that. 
more more likely is that uh, in some cases the bridges are replaced, and then in other cases we find that uh, unwittingly redundant load paths have developed. There was a bridge that crossed uh, uh, the uh, uh, Mississippi River, the I-40 bridge, I think, in Memphis. And that bridge, they found that one of the bottom cords uh, of that bridge had failed in shear. And it had almost uh, uh, progressed all the way through the member. It was only about an inch or so of a member that was 20 or so inches deep that was left holding it to, uh, holding together. Now, it wasn't that member that was carrying it, but what happened in that bridge partially was that the load that was carried by that bottom cord, this was a, uh, a an arch bridge truss, and to hold the two ends of the truss together from spreading apart, there's a cord member that stretches across there. Um, and that cord, when that let go, the loads went up into the deck, which was parallel to the cord. And that deck, which was a very, very heavy structure, started to share the load from what was being carried by, um, you know, by that cord. So unwittingly, it wasn't probably thought of in the design, but there it became redundant. And thankfully, people were driving over it, never experienced a failure until somebody went out and looked at it and said, whoa, how did this happen? And again, human failure had uh, some part in that. Uh, when the bridge was inspected and passed, that member actually was cracked and it hadn't been reported by the bridge inspectors that looked at it. And subsequently, unfortunately, they, uh, you know, they lost their job, but uh, luckily nobody was hurt because of it. So... You know, sometimes we win. Better to be lucky than good sometimes, right? Exactly. Uh, switching, switching gears a little bit, because you saw so much growth in your last uh, role, I think you said uh, you were a partner and chief bridge engineer. Yes. Uh, you went from about 500 employees to 2,000 employees. Yes. Uh, you remained a technical expert on a technical path, but I'm sure you had a huge impact on the business growth. Curious, how, how have you balanced and, and what leadership uh, lessons can you share with us balancing being a part of the business growth and maintaining your uh, your role as a technical leader? Well, uh, one of the things I learned early on, early on was that uh, you can't do everything. So you have to learn how to um, uh, get the people that you want to help you and to work for you. Um, and you have to have the confidence to let them do the work and understand that you can't do everything yourself. Um, you also have to work to help teach and educate them. Uh, and that's one of the things that I've always tried to do. I've tried to share my knowledge with anybody that came to work with me, whether it was when uh, two or three of us were working on a project or, whether, or when we had uh, uh, 400 people in the department. Um, anybody that, uh, you know, certainly had a question was always welcome. Uh, you know, the open door policy, 
and it wasn't because I took the door off the hinges. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was basically my philosophy. Um, I did teach for a while. I taught in, uh, in college, some college courses, um, and eventually, I just didn't have the time to do it because. Uh, one day I was in Florida, and another day I was in North Dakota, and another day I was, you know, <laughs> here, there, and everywhere, and you know, just too many things going on, and I had to, you know, uh, direct my attention to what really needed it to be. But uh, you know, all of that experience and all of that moving around, uh, I met a lot of people across the country. I developed a lot of clients, um, and a lot of them, uh, like I said before, were. Um, people who had been referred and recognized that we were able to do a good job for them. And I hope that has continued in the uh, uh, 10 years that I've been gone from, you know, from that organization. It certainly sounds like it. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE verified, service disabled, veteran owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. Some rapid-fire questions, starting with, do you have a most recommended or must-read book? Petrovsky. Um, I started reading his books many, many years ago. Henry Petrovsky is uh, a uh, civil engineering professor at Duke University. And he wrote a number of books. Uh, first one I think I read, I happen to have a copy of it here, The Pencil. And this book talks about all kinds of things. He talks about business. He talks about, you know, engineering failures, how things were developed and whatnot. And uh, one of the things that he said that caught my attention early on, uh, this is a quote from his book. It says, it has often been said that an engineer is someone who could do for one dollar what any fool can do for two. So, <laughs> and like you know, like all kind of witty sayings. I mean, it's got an element of truth for it. Um, you mentioned before, you know, uh, how do we find the wherewithal to do all these projects that have such urgent needs? Well, many many years ago, when we had the interstate program in its infancy. Um, Eisenhower was uh, smart enough to know that he had to develop a funding source and the gas tax became the funding source for it. Well, that was fine. And then every state that benefited from the federal uh, gas tax and the funding that they provided for infrastructure projects, every state had to develop matching funds. So they developed gas taxes and the gas taxes grew and grew and grew. And then ultimately, uh, some of the uh, people that were responsible in state government uh, found that they had a source of funds that they had never counted on before. And that source of funds was supposed to be dedicated for, you know, uh, infrastructure and whatnot, highways and uh, uh, bridges, all this kind of stuff, water supply and whatnot. And uh, then all of a sudden, uh, it was a pot that they could start to borrow from and, and whatnot. And the next thing you know, the funding for a lot of these projects was gone and left uh, engineering departments in the state and 
various other agencies scratching their heads. How are we going to do this? Now we had to prioritize and we had to decide what's going to get done, what isn't going to get done. Are we going to build that highway that we've been planning on for 20 years or are we going to put it on the back burner? Um, so it's tough. It's tough when the funding sources aren't there. Uh, later on, much later on, uh, they developed uh, private and public partnerships that together worked to build a project. Um, a lot of these uh, private-public partnerships will take over uh, existing facilities and say, okay, uh, we'll run them for you for the next 20 years. We'll do all of the maintenance. We'll do all of the design planning and the engineering that has to be done. And you let us collect the uh, tolls for this facility. And that's how we'll uh, be paid for the work and uh, in part, and part of it is will be paid for, uh, uh, you know, the actual construction reimbursed for the construction. We'll, we'll fund it, but, you know, we'll get paid for it eventually. Um, and those things happen not only here in the States, but they uh, were also adopted by uh, a lot of other countries and whatnot. Um, I recently worked on a project in Peru where we analyzed about 60 miles of, uh, or 60, 60 miles not kilometers, of um, highways down there that had been built and were taken over by a consortium. Um, and uh, the country, Peru, wanted to know uh, were they doing the proper job and whatnot. So it's not only here in the States, it's, it's in many, many areas. Um, but the funding has gotten creative. Uh, hopefully... We have been whittling down the number of uh, uh, bridges that, you know, required work and a new construction that's needed. And at some point, I hope that uh, we will get to the point where we'll be, uh, you know, pretty well done with uh, what we have to do. And and then we'll start again, and right? And then we'll start again. Exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dams, water supply, uh, by the way, and whatnot are all in the same boat. Yeah. Uh, we've got uh, water supply systems that were built in the late 1800s and, you know, uh, pipes that, uh, you know, probably we shouldn't have been using at times, uh, uh, that those types of materials and whatnot. And those, those things have to be replaced. And less attention was paid to them than was paid to the highways primarily because a lot of that infrastructure was buried. You didn't see it. You didn't pay attention to it, you know, so. Right. Yeah. Uh, we talked before we got on the show, you're, you've got a pretty big family. You've got a hell of a career. Anything outside of, uh, out of the business world, nonprofits or, or hobbies that you're, uh, you're into? I see the train in the background. <laughs> yeah, I have an extensive uh, model railroad collection, uh, started with the first set that I got, which was right after the war in 1947. My father and mother gave me a uh, Lionel train set that I still have and still operates. And over the years, I've added, um, my, wolf, my wife will tell you, several hundred pieces to it, uh, all kinds of engines and cars and whatnot. And luckily, I have a grandson who about a year or two ago said to me, 
hey, Pop, let's build another model railroad. Uh, so we took one of the rooms in the house, and we're in the process. And uh, what you see behind me and in the other room would be uh, all of that collection. So we enjoy that, and uh, we also do a lot of RVing. Uh, we started RVing when our kids were uh, uh, not too many years old, about three or four years old. And uh, over 50 years, uh, uh, we've owned a number of uh, uh, different types of RVs and uh, probably seven or eight motorhomes. And just last year, we scaled down a little bit. I used to have a 45-foot uh, uh, diesel bus, and uh, we traded that in, and it got something a little bit smaller. Uh, I'm uh, old enough to realize that I shouldn't be pushing one of those things around anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> Favorite quote? Favorite quote. Um, from the Greek, Socrates, Nothi Sauton, know thyself. Um, it, was a, uh, it was our quote, uh, I believe, back in high school. And uh, believe it or not, I, I've stuck by that a lot. And it really fits in with what I said before about uh, engineers should do things that they are familiar with and very well experienced in and not offer to uh, do work that uh, they're not properly trained in. Know thyself, engineer. So, know thyself. That's one. Uh, yeah. Dead or alive, if you could hang out with three people for a day, who would they be? What would you do? Uh, my father, Squire Whipple, who designed the Whipple Trust. Um, ah. And uh, I'll give you your choice. Um, St. Peter, St. Paul, or the good Lord himself. <laughs> I like it. And what would I do? What would I do? Uh, I'd like to find out about the true meaning of uh, what I've been doing all these years. And did I do a good job? <laughs> uh, last question is, um, what do you want to share with the industry? How do you want to, anything you want to share with our audience? Yes. Um, I think that uh, it's very important that we as an industry understand that uh, this industry changes over time. It evolves. Uh, we've gone from living in caves to very rudimentary types of structures and whatnot. And now we have all these wonderful places that we live, these wonderful bridges that we travel over and whatnot. And, uh, you know, we've got high-speed trains that do uh, 300 miles an hour, uh, but sometimes we find it difficult to keep them on the tracks, and sometimes we find it difficult to keep the planes in the air. Um, so I think that anybody who's involved in design, um, and believe it or not, engineers, look around you in your everyday life, and anything that you touch, anything that you're associated with uh, has probably been worked on by an engineer or developed by an engineer. Uh, we've got such a tremendous responsibility to society. And I think that we should honor that and say that uh, we will do what's right by society 
And in order to do that, we have to, you know, understand our limitations and act accordingly. Vince Campisi, thank you for your more than 60 years of wisdom and sharing it with us and, and for your commitment to our industry and, and for challenging us. I, I couldn't agree more that, you know, we we do have a code and that we have to continue to, to keep the public uh, in the forefront of our decision making. Thanks so much for your time, Vince. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Hey, everybody, if you enjoy the show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more about our projects. Uh, Until next time, have a great week and a uh, great weekend. Thanks.